0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. You'd be hard pressed to go a day without hearing or seeing something about the presidential election this November. Historically, turnout is high. So, why aren't local elections as magnetic to voters as the national races? That's one of the questions we have for Secretary of the, St- of the State, Denise Merrill. She's in studio, and you can join the conversation, 860 275 7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Coming up later, we'll talk about efforts to combat Zika in Connecticut and the latest on why scientists are still struggling to understand the effects of this virus. And we'll also hear about life in the UK after the Brexit vote. First, I want to welcome Secretary of the State Denise Merrill to where we live. Thank Thank you. you so much for coming in. So let's talk about uh, Tuesday's race, first off. Um, mm-hmm. So there were 12 legislative districts up for election uh, state um, lawmaker seats. The turnout to most people didn't look very high. What was it, 19% for Dems, 17% for registered Republicans? Um, how did that race compare to others? Yeah,
2: believe it or not, that's slightly higher than what we thought would happen uh, because this is it was a unique election in the sense that there was no statewide primary. It for any of the federal offices. So, you know, it was a few towns had primaries, basically. And those towns, it, it could have been a Republican primary in some cases or a Democratic primary in other cases. So it, it's a very limited audience, first of all. But 20% was actually pretty decent. And, of course, these are unofficial results. Sometimes that changes in the next few weeks. But, um, you know, I, and that's that's a sad statement, isn't it? It (laughs) is. 20% does not sound high.
0: We heard some sentiment from uh, listeners uh, uh, via Twitter that, you know, they had no idea that there were these local races. So, you know, where does the buck stop? Should there be more, um, you know, announcements from your office? Should be the the local officials in town, if there's an election coming up, should they be getting the word out? We all do.
2: I mean, I put out numerous uh, statements on every media I could find. We always do for every election. You know, some of it uh, is because there is very little local media anymore. I mean, everybody knows what uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump had for breakfast, <laughs> but they don't know uh, about their local candidates. And and some of that is just it's a presidential year. All the attention is going nationally. And, you know, it's sad because local candidates are where you can really make a difference. You know, no one's going to notice, you know, if you're voting for president, I, I'm not sure that will give you access to a president, but... Locally, these are folks you see in your grocery store.
0: Uh, WMPR's Colin McEnroe um, spoke about how he ran into some problems at his polling site. Here's what he had to say on WMPR's Wheelhouse on Wednesday.
3: So, uh, yeah, I went to what's a new polling place for me. I got turned away. I was told I was not on the list. I went home. I thought about this a while. Uh, Well, and actually, when I was there the first time, I said, you know, I'm pretty sure I got something in the mail telling me I really had been reassigned to this. And one of the, I think it might have been the moderator there, said, well, no, you would have had to go, go to town hall for that, that or whatever. So I sort of gave up, and then I went home. And then I thought about it some more. I even located the piece of paper. It comes from DMV. It's because I re-registered my license. It says, no, this is where you vote right now. So I go back, and this time they find me on the list. And 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 I just, you know, these are nice people, and they're volunteers for the most part. or People are giving, their, they're donating their time. They're not evil people. This wasn't a voter suppression tactic. It wasn't anything like that. But it's too damn hard to vote in Connecticut. There's too much confusion about what the rules are. The rules about photo IDs, I mean, we know from these Texas cases, photo IDs are evil. But you will always be asked for a photo photo ID when you vote in Connecticut. And uh, from the Secretary of State's office, you can see what the rules are. The rules are unbelievably confusing and unnecessarily confusing.
0: So uh, Denise Merrill again, Connecticut Secretary of the State. You know, What's your reaction? I mean, you're nodding your head when uh, Colin says <laughs> that elections are too damn hard here in Connecticut. What are some ways to make it easy?
2: Oh, we've been working on this <laughs> a long time. And as I have said, on Colin's show, I think the biggest problem we have on Election Day is people show up at the polls and they're told their name isn't on the list for whatever reason. And it's usually either a clerical error or they moved and didn't change their registration. And a lot of people... Just figure it follows them, which it doesn't, and it should. And I think we're making progress on this because, you know, this new uh, – and we're going to talk about this in a little while. DMV now will be a place where you can register to vote and get your license renewal. That's a step forward <laughs> because at least you only have to go to one place to get something done. But, yes, it's, it's the biggest problem we have. Personally, I think with a statewide voter list, we ought to be able to vote in multiple jurisdictions, for example, as they can in many states. Um, you know, there's no reason anymore that you have to have – Uh, very, very local places. In fact, if you move from one side of town to the other, sometimes you have to re-register. I mean, that's no longer necessary.
0: We were talking uh, before the show about uh, November. And so when we look at the turnout in August, again, historically, presidential races, it's pretty high. Um, you know, What kind of, of training um, will your local registrars and, and their volunteers slash staff get um, to make sure that these people aren't going to be running to the same problems where their name isn't on the list? What do they do? Yeah.
2: Well, of course, it's better during a general election because we have election day registration. So if you get to a polling place and they say, oh, you're not on the list you can fix that. You have to go to town hall to do it so far. We still haven't got internet at the polls, but um, at least it can be rectified, Um, but not in a primary. Primaries are different. Uh, You know, it's it's interesting to think about what the turnout's going to be for the presidential, but we're figuring it'll be high. But our low, our our elections are hyper local. Um, every registrar in the towns, they're responsible for training and hiring and making sure the polls are opening, and so it's very difficult. We have now created standards for the first time for training and certification of registrars, and that just went into effect last year. Um, and and so now I think things will be more orderly. I hope so because we have put some things in place that hopefully that kind of thing won't happen as much.
0: You mentioned uh, motor voter. So just this week, it launched um, this I guess new process. I guess you could always register at the DMV, and now <laughs> and now there is an official prompt to the clerks so if you go there to register your car or get a driver's license or renew. Um, there's actually a prompt that they're going to ask you. Can you explain that process?
2: Yes, sure. Uh, Actually, since 1993, there was something called the Motor Voter Act passed, and we were supposed to be doing this all that time. We haven't been doing a very good job with it, primarily because of the training aspect. They just – you know, it fell between the cracks over the years. I don't think we ever did a very good job, Um, but – it was brought to my attention a couple of years ago that Connecticut wasn't performing well. Many states, most of their registrations come from the DMV through this process. And basically what it is is you get up, you're after standing in line, presumably. <laughs> we won't go there. Uh, and then you, uh, you're, let's say, getting a new driver's license or renewing your driver's license. The clerk is all on computer now, of course. And so after the clerk takes your name and address – and whatever information they collect for your driver's license, there is a prompt for the clerk to say, and by the way, would you like to register to vote? And if you say yes, they will have a kind of pre-populated form with your name and address all spelled correctly, theoretically. See, that's one of the big problems we have with voter lists. People are trying to read people's handwriting. They get it wrong. They're in the wrong place, that sort of thing. So this will fix all that because it's already filled in. They give it to you, a piece of paper, you fill in wh- whether you want to register with a party. You attest that you're a citizen, all the things people are concerned about. And you give it back to the clerk. The clerk then inputs it into the computer and sends it electronically to the towns where it's processed. See, that's, it's still a very local process. So each town has to process that piece of paper. But the DMV no longer has to do it all by hand, which is what they were doing before, which is probably why it wasn't happening very much.
0: And so it launched actually in the the AAA offices Monday in the DMV Tuesday. How many people are taking advantage of this?
2: Hundreds. And this is what's really interesting because at the time we predicted that if we automated this process more readily for people that it would result in more registrations. And I think it's starting to look like that's going to be true because in the very first day on Monday when DMV is closed, of course, AAA is open and they processed 153 new voters just on that first day. Tuesday, when DMV opened, they processed 541 new voters and 689 changes of address, which gets me all excited because that means, hey, we're going to have more accurate lists. So that's a huge number. Normally, we were trying to figure out, like, how many we usually get in a year, and it's about 100 a day uh, total overall, not just DMV, all registrations. And here we have 541 new voters on the first day of the operation. It's great.
0: I'm talking with Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill. We were talking about uh, the Motor Voter uh, Act and how now when you go to the DMV, the AAA, you're able uh, to register to vote, um, and it seems like an easier process. In terms of um, the question about citizenship, we, we know here in Connecticut we do have a, a program where um, people that are undocumented can go and get a driver's license. And so what is the process for someone who may not be eligible to vote if they were then asked, um, you know, do you want to register to vote? If they're not eligible, what are the checks and balances?
2: Well, uh, at DMV, the whole uh, non-eligible driver's licenses are a separate system, so they don't intersect. So once someone says they're eligible to vote, if they're there to get a, a, a separate license, as that kind is, then they would not be allowed to register first of all. And, of course, there are many other, I mean, the fact is people attest to the fact they're a citizen. So you have to sign something saying you're a citizen. So I think there are a lot of checks and balances. And then, of course, it goes to the local level where they also check to make sure you actually live there and that sort of thing. So I I don't have many concerns about that.
0: I want to take a call now. uh, Jeff from Prospect. Jeff, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Good morning.
1: Um, I'm I'm calling. My question is, uh, I know, Obviously, that it seems like there's progress here uh, with the motor voter registration, um, although that seems like it's probably around in many states. Uh, My question is for uh, not to get rid of the paper ballots or the voting stations because I know a lot of people that are not computer savvy really like that history. However, why can't we, for local elections at least, Uh, have a internet voting plan. Uh, The concern that everybody, you know, puts out is the concern that there might be uh, voter fraud or some sort of uh, thing like that. But I I don't know whether that's such a concern when we're talking about local elections and the capacity to hack into a computer system for local elections. What are your thoughts?
0: All right. Thank you, Jeff, for your call.
2: Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up, uh, because there has been a lot of discussion just recently about the security of our elections. We have been very resistant to any kind of internet voting. Um, There have been people that have demonstrated that you can hack into certain machines. Personally, I am very dubious that anyone could ever, quote, hack a national election. But the question about a local election is interesting. I do still feel that the paper trail is important because if there are ever questions, a close election, even at the local level, uh, you always have that paper trail. And um, I I think in the future, perhaps there will be Internet voting, uh, but they're going to have to – improve the security. And right now, our problem is we have older technology, uh, even our scan machines, which, frankly, I love. I think they're great because they are older. They're, they're just a scanner. But you still have a computer chip in there that tells the scanner how to read the ballots. And so but I think this idea that you have a piece of paper that you can trace and go back to is very important, along with our um, post-election audits, which we also audit all the machines. So you know, I'd be I it would be a hard sell with me.
0: <laughs> you had said that you think you're dubious of a national hack and of a national race. Why is that?
2: I think it's actually kind of laughably impossible because of just what we were discussing before. There are, you know, thousands and thousands of precincts in this country, and every state does it differently. Every jurisdiction has different equipment. Uh most of the country now has the scanners, as we do, which has a paper trail, and you can trace back to make sure that the, re- the results have not been tampered with. Uh, individual machines, probably, if given enough access, you could probably hack into the little card and and tell it to do something different. But um, that would be so difficult to orchestrate on any massive level that I, I just can't even imagine it.
0: So if we had one system for the whole country, a national system, take the states out of it, That would be an easier way to hack.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, but we just don't have that in this country. And a lot of us moan about it all the time. But truthfully, in the end, I'm beginning to think it's not a bad thing.
0: Let's talk about election performance in Connecticut. So there was a Pew study earlier this week. Connecticut's rated pretty highly.
2: Yes. We're up to number five in the country, which is quite great for us. I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting index. They rate the states on 17 measures of election performance. And it includes things like uh, data management, you know, how much we're reporting, is it accurate? But it also includes things like, you know, have we reduced barriers to voting? How easy is it to vote? What's the voter's experience? So they measure things like time in line, and that's all kind of self-reported. So they use uh, survey data from various sources and um, federal and local elections information. So for us to come up... uh, we came up from, I think we were 19th in 2008. So we've come a long ways, and we have done a lot to change things and make it better.
0: I'm getting a call now. Uh, Luther from Glastonbury, um, he's referencing the Pew study. Luther, you're on where we live.
4: Hi, Luther Weeks, um, executive director of the Connecticut Citizen Election Audit. And I agree with many of the things the secretary has said. But I'm always skeptical of things like a performance index that look at uh, just a few items, uh, you know, sort of like one business survey says Connecticut's the worst place for business, and the next one says, oh, we're really uh, good for business. And I just bring up a couple of things. Uh, you know, as reported in the paper, our SEC is uh, being crippled, and uh, we have a very slow process for uh, resolving election complaints. And, uh, you know, our group did a study of uh, websites in Connecticut, and uh, the local websites, uh, just a little over half of them uh, have no link to online voter registration. Uh, Only 15% of them uh, tell voters about the voter ID requirements so they come to the polls uh, prepared. Uh, So there's a lot of things that we could do better. And I just add one more thing for election preparedness. It's good that we have Election Day registration, but that Election Day registration is totally dependent on the phone system working, the state uh, voter registration system being up and online all the time. Um, I'm worried about a November that comes uh, like we had with Hurricane Sandy and uh, where the voter registration system uh, goes down, as it does occasionally, and uh, we're stuck in the water in being able to do uh, Election Day registration.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Luther. I'm going to have uh, Secretary of the State um, Denise Merrill answer some of, of your concerns, uh, starting with election complaints. What is the process? Uh,
2: yes, that we are not – my office does not uh, handle complaints. It is, as Luther says – and hello, Luther. Thank you for calling in. Uh, it is the Election Enforcement Commission – Uh, it's a difficult situation because elections are momentary. And of course, to try to investigate any complaints that come in on the spot is very difficult. So it's usually after the fact. Um, And we have an election day hotline, which we uh, staff with the Election Enforcement Commission, and we try to go and at least find out of the Thousands of complaints that might come in on an election day, which ones are real, which ones are just like candidates and campaigns roiling the waters. There's a lot that goes on. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't think I don't know if we could do any better. And I know there's been a lot of complaints about the funding for the Election Enforcement Commission. I'm not sure that would make any difference. It's just it's just how it is. Elections are a moment in time and everyone's very head up.
0: We just have a couple more minutes. I wanted to just um, read a comment from Adrian from Norwich. We may not have time to take your call, Adrian. Uh, but Adrian's asking, how do you outreach to the elderly and disabled? Who should we contact to try to have someone speak to that particular population?
2: Uh, yes, actually, there's a lot going on. We're hoping to have new uh, disability voting machines in place by this election. Um, so, again, it's, it's your local town. that that really runs these elections. So it's your local town clerks and registrars that would be the people to talk to about exactly how people can access these. But I speak all the time to uh, senior citizen groups and uh, the disabled community about these issues. So I'm happy to come wherever people would like me to come talk about it.
0: And then um, real quick, we were, again, speaking about the the national race, uh, the presidential race happening in November Again, what is high turnout, and what do you see happening with people who find both candidates not very palatable?
2: Boy, that's the $64,000 question lately, and I'm not sure. I don't even know myself, but I I can just tell you that a high turnout or an average like presidential turnout in Connecticut is around probably 70% would be on the high side. Uh, I don't know. It depends on whether, for example, we have some third party candidates that get onto Connecticut's ballot, which we'll find out in a week or so whether the Green Party and Libertarian, for example, candidates are on the ballot. Um, And, you know, everyone you talk to seems confused. (laughs) So, you know, if we hit I'm expecting it to be a high turnout. There's just so much interest in this election. I can't imagine there's that many people that want to sit it out.
0: I want to thank Denise Merrill, Connecticut Secretary of the State. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. We'll have to have you back on again before November. Oh, I'm
2: sure there'll be lots to talk
0: about. <laughs> coming up next, we'll find out more about efforts to combat Zika in Connecticut. Local transmissions of the mosquito-borne virus are a big problem in Florida. Could we see that kind of outbreak up here? This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Zika. 1,600 cases have been confirmed in the continental U.S., primarily in southern states. But one of the mosquitoes that can carry the virus lives in Connecticut. Today, we're checking in on efforts to combat Zika locally after news that the federal government has allocated millions to states. However, some lawmakers, among others, argue this batch of federal money is not enough. In studio with me now is Dr. Ted Andriotis, director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Uh, Dr. Andriotis, welcome to where we live.
5: Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So we're going to start with you. Again, this uh, batch of money has come into Connecticut. Is it about a million dollars?
5: Um, I think that's right. Uh, For the experiment station, uh, we're going to receive another $100,000 that will help us enhance our mosquito trapping and testing program. Uh, We have a very comprehensive program that dates back to 1997, where we monitor mosquito populations throughout the state of Connecticut in 91 locations. Uh, We collect uh, starting in June and continue until the end of October. Um, What this additional funding will allow us to do will be enhanced trapping and testing uh, for the Zika virus. Um, As you indicated, uh, we do have one species of mosquito here in Connecticut called the Asian tiger mosquito that's really uh, located just along the coast in Fairfield in New Haven counties. And uh, we're collecting more of those mosquitoes and testing them specifically for the Zika virus. Um, Right now, all indications are that while this mosquito is capable of transmitting the virus, it is not the principal species that's driving the epidemic in Central and South America, nor is it the species that's involved in local transmission in South Florida right now. That species is called Aedes aegypti. It's a tropical species, and it does not occur in Connecticut, and we're not likely to see it. So we're operating under the assumption that we're not likely to see the virus picked up by local mosquito populations, but we are clearly trapping for it and testing for it. And thus far, none of the mosquitoes that we've trapped and tested, and we've trapped over 120,000 to date, have tested positive for Zika.
0: Um, I'm reading here that an uh, extra $100,000 was given to the ag station from the CDC. And so, is that, is that enough to have you do this extra monitoring, even though you've, again, your staff has been trapping mosquitoes, testing for other viruses um, in past years? Yes, this will
5: really help. Um, we've got one other problem because our state funding uh, for the mosquito program had been cut. Uh, by about 50,000. So this will help to bridge that gap. In addition to that, uh, we need to uh, purchase specialized traps. Uh, It may be hard to believe, but We have 50 different species in Connecticut, and they're not all the same, and this particular mosquito does not uh, go into the common traps that we use to monitor West Nile virus and Eastern equine encephalitis, so we have to use a specialized trap. So with this additional funding, we can purchase these traps, we can trap more frequently, and we can conduct the testing in our biosafety level 3 containment facility for the Zika virus. So that's what that funding will be used for.
0: Um Can we talk a little bit about um, the testing um, how is there anything different but the way you've tested for other mosquitoes for this particular one that you say is found in the southern part of the state? No.
5: The procedures are are generally the same. Um, What happens is we collect mosquitoes every day. They come into our laboratories in New Haven. Uh, We identify them all microscopically. And then the following day, they go into our biosafety level three containment facility where we grind them up and we put them into a cell culture. And we use African green monkey cells, if you can believe that, because these viruses will grow. And if there's virus in the mosquitoes, uh, we start to see what's called cytopathic effect where the cells become disruptive. Then we have to make a decision what to test for, and we are able to test uh, by molecular techniques using PCR, for seven different viruses that we know occur in the state, as well now is the Zika virus. So that's the procedures that we generally use. And our turnaround time is quite quick, uh, usually about five to six days before we collect the mosquitoes and we can report the results that go directly to our Department of Public Health, which will then inform the local communities.
0: That's Dr. Ted Andreatas, director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Uh, Joining us now in studio is our uh, State Department of Public Health Commissioner, Raul Pino. Thank you so much for coming to where we live today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So Zika is on the minds of a lot of people, uh, not just abroad, but here locally with uh, the number of transmission, the, the cases that have been confirmed in Florida. What can you tell us about Zika here in Connecticut?
6: Well, um, at this point, we don't have a major concern or expecting uh, local transmission in Connecticut, but it doesn't mean that we uh, are not alert and looking for it. Uh, So we have designed several layers in our surveillance system that will provide us with the ability to quickly identify cases that may happen uh, in Connecticut if they happen, so that we will be able to react and act accordingly.
0: Can you talk about, the, the I guess, the process to test people, whether they have been coming back to Connecticut from abroad? Um, there, I heard there was something called sentinel testing.
6: Yes. Um, there are um, two different uh, systems in place right now in Connecticut, and it changed. It's changing. Yeah, this is a changing environment, um, as we learn uh, about this disease and what it can cause. So if someone has developed symptoms, either male or female, and there is um, an indication that uh, they have trouble or being in contact with someone who have trouble in the last two weeks uh, to some of the affected areas, um, they will be tested.
0: What are the symptoms?
6: Um, the symptoms are, you know, the normal symptoms that you see in any flu-like uh, disease, except that this one uh, normally presents with a skin rash and conjunctivitis at times. So, a muscle ache, a headaches, a fever... Uh, being tired, uh, that kind of general uh, feeling that people get when they are sick.
0: And how many people have been tested here in Connecticut? How many confirmed cases?
6: So we have tested um, up to today uh, or to uh, yesterday uh, 519 uh, individuals. 390 of those were pregnant women.
0: Mm. And so when you talk about the sentinel testing, um, what is the criteria? So if they have traveled abroad, if they're pregnant, and they have certain symptoms. Well, the
6: sentinel system is designed to go beyond what is recommended by the CDC. So, in uh, coordination with our cultural station, we have identified areas that, if we were to have local transmission, is more likely to happen um, because of who live in those areas, meaning what and group live there that are connected to the areas where transmission is happening, or also those areas where the mosquito, the albopectus, has been found in the past. So if we were to have a mosquito transmission, if we have all the conditions, those are some of the places that are more likely it could happen.
0: So Bridgeport along the shore? Yes,
6: along the shore um, we are engaging more facilities um, step by step. So basically, what we do is we said to the doctors in those um, locations, uh, you can test um, out of the range up to uh, 10 individuals per site that um, have any of the symptoms that are related to Zika, even if they don't have a history of traveling to the area. And that's what we are looking for. So, right now, we are engaged with San Vincent and all the facilities. Southwest Community Health Centers and Optimus uh, Healthcare.
0: So, what we know is that you can possibly get Zika from being bit by a particular mosquito or sexually transmission?
6: Yes, uh, there has been sexual transmission already in the United States as well as what is believed to be. Uh, mosquito-to-human transmission in Florida.
0: And you talked about populations. Obviously, lots of uh, Puerto Ricans live in Connecticut. Uh, Many go back and forth in Puerto Rico, a big, uh, you know, explosion of Zika there. So um, is it likely that we would see people, when you look at the people that have been confirmed, that they have traveled? Well, interesting.
6: We were expecting that. Um, It looks like, well, Puerto Rico is having an outbreak right now. I mean, it's going a little bit higher than it was a few weeks ago. But most of our cases are coming from the Dominican Republic. Um, Interesting enough, we were not expecting that. Uh, It may be that uh, some of the measures that we have taken into place and that Puerto Rico has put into place are working at this point. But still, um, it's early in the season for Puerto Rico. Our summer is very short. Uh, So uh, we'll see what happens.
0: What kind of guidance are uh, Connecticut residents being uh, given? Are there signs at the airport or reminding people that if you're traveling to a particular part of Latin America, the Caribbean, um, you know, just to be wary when you come back, if you notice you're not feeling well? you know, What's the advice you give to our residents?
6: So you mentioned the airport. So at the airport, we have developed a campaign that is designed specifically for the flights that go to Puerto Rico. All the areas, people fly from New York or Miami or do other connecting flights, so it's, it's, it's almost impossible for those areas. But at least for the flights that we have daily to Puerto Rico, there is an advertisement at the airport that each individual who is departing, Connecticut receives a flyer with information on how to protect themselves. And we have campaigns in Spanish and English that are targeting our um, our most at-risk uh, population that travel to different areas.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about Zika uh, preventative efforts here in Connecticut. Uh, Commissioner Dr. Raul Pino from the Connecticut Department of Public Health is here. Also, Dr. Ted Andriottis, Director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. If you have a question, 860 275 A lot of attention on the amount of money that the federal government is giving states and whether it's enough. And joining us now is Dr. Paolo Verardi, Associate Professor at the University of Connecticut. You're doing important work, Dr. Verardi, uh, trying to develop a vaccine.
7: Absolutely. Um, so uh, I am actually a native from Brazil, so I was uh, aware of the Zika outbreak um, uh, very early on. And once we realized you know, the, import, the, the microcephalic cases, the spike in microcephalic cases, I started immediately working on a Zika vaccine myself. And also in conjunction with two other uh, uh, vaccine companies here in Connecticut, protein sciences, and caraging. Um, so we are, we are in the process of uh, developing our vaccine candidates and testing them.
0: So what do you need from the federal government to help you get to this vaccine faster?
7: Well, money is always needed, mm-hmm. right? So uh, uh, as you know, you know uh, uh, President Obama requested about $1.9 billion back in February, um, and uh, um, the, the Senate actually approved a $1.1 billion uh, uh, Zika bill, uh, but unfortunately, you know, that got stuck in, in the House. Um, Congress, you know, uh, is in recess now for the summer. So uh, people like Senator Blumenthal are really, you know, asking for uh, Congress to reconvene now that we have those uh, 22 local cases of, uh, you know, mosquito, most likely to mosquito transmission in Florida. So uh, that money is desperately needed. Um, what what you know the National Institutes of Health, which is the major you know federal funding for biomedical research here in the United States, has done is uh, cannibalize some of uh, you know the Ebola funds uh, and transfer that to the uh, so that people can you know start doing some of the Zika work, but that is obviously not enough. Money is, not, is needed not only for development of vaccines, but also, you know, better diagnostics, um, um, mosquito control measures, and so on, and and also to just understand the basic biology of the virus. There's a lot that needs to be, you know, that, that still needs to be learned. The pathogenesis, how the virus, you know, causes disease, and how, you know, it actually leads to micro, microcephaly.
0: So you received, uh, recently got news, I think it was yesterday, that yes. you received this $400,000 grant from the National Institute of Health. How will you use that grant towards the work?
7: Yeah, so that is not a lot of money. You know, it was about $410,000, but it is what NIH you know, is able to afford right now. Um, I believe you know, I'm probably one of the first to receive uh, you know a, a funding from NIH specifically for a Zika vaccine. That money will be crucial because, you know, it's, we can develop vaccine candidates relatively quickly, but to uh, to do the initial testing, usually in small animal models, models that, by the way, need to, you know, to be better developed, That there was no such a thing as an animal model for Zika before. So to do those studies and to proceed then into, you know, larger animal models and then, you know, essentially into uh, clin- human clinical trials, that takes a lot of money and effort. Um, money is needed not only to do those things, uh, money also, you know, would help to expedite the process. So... Uh, um, that that's what is needed.
0: Can you talk about the urgency as a researcher? Because you mentioned Ebola and how the, the, the amount of money the feds are giving towards research and development of a vaccine, preventative efforts towards Ebola is now being transferred over to deal with Zika. But when Zika is no longer in the news, I mean, do you worry that, you know, the work that you're doing is going to be sidelined by something else? C-
7: certainly, because that's exactly what's happening in in, in the Ebola field. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, all of that effort, you know, may not lead to something. If uh, you know, if, if if that money suddenly disappears, uh, that may be the case with Zika. And so we are always essentially will be catching up all the time. You know that we have uh, uh, an outbreak uh, such as uh, you know the the Ebola and the, the Zika outbreak. So uh, we need to have a better system to deal with this. We 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 need to not able to just you know essentially catching up to the things we really need to have a system in place so we can react very quickly. And by the way, the reaction here, particularly in the U.S., was very slow, uh, uh, at least to my standards. Uh, It took uh, a little bit of time for uh, the CDC and NIH to, uh, uh, you know, uh, make the link between Zika and microcephaly official. Um, During that time, you know, um, 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 you know, Funding did not become available. Um, a lot of research that could have been done, you know, uh, was not uh, necessarily done, although uh, I have to say that the scientists in the U.S. have been doing a great, great job. They have been – we know – essentially, we know money. Uh, we know a lot more now, uh, uh, you know, than we knew just, uh, you know, six months ago. We really know a lot more. So, um, 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 but, you know, the money would have been very helpful.
0: So at the process where you are now, if you were to get this, uh, the the amount of money that you need, you know, how long would it take to develop a, a Zika vaccine?
7: Yes, that's the, that's one the million dollar, million yes. dollar question. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, you know, we do have two vaccines now. Uh, there are in human uh, clinical trials. These are two DNA vaccines. One developed by the NIH and one developed by Inovio. Um So those uh, phase one clinical trials are starting right now. Um, those, th- those types of vaccines, though, are usually the ones that work very well in, in small animal models like mice they don't, don't translate very well into humans. So, you know, there's a still a need to bring into the pipeline a number of other different vaccines for us to really test their efficacy and, uh, and later on safety, which will be, you know, a big issue as well. So um, 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 the prediction of how long it's going to take, you know, for a, va- for a, a Zika vaccine to be... Um, approved by the FDA is a hard one. I mean, here we are, you know, in 2016, and we still don't have an approved Ebola vaccine. Mm. So, uh, you know, we have been very optimistic. Uh, The uh, uh, NIH has mentioned, you know, perhaps in two years we'll have such a vaccine. I tend to be a little bit more skeptical, but, you know, I think it is is possible, but uh, it will take a lot of effort and money.
0: You mentioned you're from uh, Brazil originally, uh, Dr. Virardi. Obviously, a personal connection when you look at uh, Brazil and the explosion of Zika there.
7: Absolutely. And, you know, and because I was watching, you know, I was actually in Brazil last summer. During the initial part of the outbreak, um, people were not concerned. You know, Zika was not, was a, uh, a disease that, or a virus that, you know, uh, uh, causes uh, symptoms only in a fraction of people. Uh, and those symptoms, you know, normally uh, not extremely severe. But it wasn't until October when I was back here that I started noticing, you know, a lot of talk about microcephaly in Brazil. And then suddenly, you know, the the link was initially made um, that I became aware of it and very concerned and quite surprised that the rest of the world was not paying attention to that. But they are now. They are certainly now. I mean, Zika has become a household name, no question.
0: Um, We're almost out of time. I want to turn back to uh, Department of Public Health Commissioner, Dr. Raul Pino. Um, If residents want more information about, you know, steps that they can take, especially if they're traveling or, again, because this virus can be transmitted sexually, the things they should be looking for if they're not feeling well.
6: Well, you know, as always, anyone should go to the doctor as soon as they don't feel well. And as the doctor was saying, only one of five people will develop symptoms. So our biggest concern for transmission is for those who don't feel anything and feel all right. Um, you know, they have come from a vacation, they are having fun, uh, they come from some other areas. So that's why protection is critical, and it's also critical um, uh, environment modification uh, in the sense that we have to prevent the mosquito from going in our backyards and landfills and those tires and small containers, and I'm pretty sure uh, Ted did talk about that. Uh, and that's that. That's critical. Um, this is a disease that is going to stay for a while. Different than Ebola, it's a transmission through a vector in place, a vector that we have not been able to control very well in the past, and that we're it's going to be difficult. And probably Ted did talk about this too: is that the mosquito has been very resilient. Mm-hmm. This mosquito is. Uh, It's a smart.
0: I want to thank Dr. Raul Pino, Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Public Health. Also, Dr. Paolo Verardi, Associate Professor at the University of Connecticut. He's a pathologist working to develop a vaccine for the Zika virus. And Dr. Ted Andriotis, Director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. When we come back from the break, a look at UK after Brexit. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Pithanchel. Britain's recent vote to leave the European Union shocked the world. Now several weeks on, the future for the UK and Europe is still far from clear. WNPR's business reporter Harriet Jones is from Britain. She recently went back for a vacation to see family. While she was there, she got a close-up look at people's reaction to the Brexit vote. And she joins us
8: now. Hi, Harriet. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm well. I hope you had a happy vacation. I had a great time, actually. Yes, it was Wonderful we're curious what the mood is like in Britain post-Brexit. You know, it's really different than I thought it would be because I anticipated I'd be going back and there would be, you know, debates going on and, you know, arguments and people talking about all the time. Not the least of it. It it was very odd. It seems like, you know, there's almost a mood of, eerie calm there people don't really want to talk about it that much you can kind of prod them and they'll say one or two things but they're very keen to kind of change the subject it seems like you know that immediate kind of um eruption after brexit has kind of settled down and now people want to kind of move on a little bit because they're and i think that's really to do with the fact that they're not sure what's going to happen it's become very clear that this is not going to be a quick process. Nobody knows what the end game is. No country has ever left the European Union. So it's just a bunch of unknowns. So it was very interesting talking to people. They would say a couple of things and then they'd say, but what about the U.S. election? What about <laughs> Donald Trump? Anybody who comes from the U.S. to the U.K., people are so curious about Trump. And in Scotland particularly, I don't know if you remember um, Donald Trump's foot in mouth that he did right after the Brexit vote in Scotland. He, said, he went to one of his golf courses in Scotland and he said, congratulations for taking your country back.
0: <laughs> That's right. That was quite the foot and mouth. <laughs> right.
8: When, of course, you know, the majority of Scots had voted to remain. So many people reminded me of that. They would bring up Donald, Donald Trump on that particular incident. I wanted to turn back to something you said earlier
0: about when you brought up, we uh, were asking them about Brexit uh, after the vote. Um, you know, they'd say a few things and then they would turn it back on you knowing that you're, uh, you're an American now. And asking you about Donald Trump, do they see parallels? you know people here that are supporting donald Trump who are are sick of the establishment? do they see parallels to what happened with the people who supported brexit?
8: You know I think there's there are parallels in the just the sheer disgust with career politicians, you know that feeling of okay, Donald Trump is an outsider, and that's why many people you know feel positive towards him, want to vote for him. They think he's, you know, different than your regular politician. There is an absolute disgust for politicians over in the UK right now. There's a feeling both among people who um, voted to leave and those who voted to remain that the politicians have just got them into a massive mess. I was in London and we were on a bus going past, literally past the Houses of Parliament, um, on that on that road past Westminster. And the bus driver just dripping with contempt. You know, all the decisions that are made in there are just nonsense. Um, You know, just couldn't have been more disgusted with the politicians. And there's that kind of feeling that um, that's the feeling amongst a lot of people, even people who voted to leave. You know, you would think they would be happy, right? You'd think they got what they wanted. But they've seen all of those kind of concrete, clear promises that they were given kind of evaporate. You know, they were told, "Okay, we're going to have control over our borders. We're going to be able to control immigration. We're going to be able to take that money that we spend on the EU and spend it now on our National Health Service. All of those things have kind of evaporated now and we're left with this uncertainty. And many of the people who made those promises have also left the scene. So Nigel Farage, the Mm -hmm. head of UKIP, has left. Boris Johnson has made a, <laughs> a very weird kind of um, career move. So he you know, he could have been the prime minister. I think many people who voted Leave were expecting he would be the next prime minister to, to succeed David Cameron. That didn't happen because of a fight between people in the Leave uh, camp. He's now the foreign secretary, which even people who are supporters of Boris Johnson think is kind of a, a bizarre turn of events because a less diplomatic person you can't really imagine. Something that struck
0: a lot of us about um, the whole Brexit vote is just the nationalistic feeling. So how are immigrants feeling uh, about the Brexit vote?
8: Yes, immigrants are very much in evidence um, in the UK, and that's happened more and more. I, I've been in the States for 15 years now, and I've tried to go back most years, most summers, to see family. And more and more you find especially low-wage, temporary-type uh, jobs are being filled by immigrants many from the from uh, eastern europe um spoke to a lot of them and you know to a person they told me this vote has made me feel unwelcome in this country you know and that was independent of whether their status would change i actually met um americans in the in the uk who obviously won't their, their status will not be affected by this they said this vote made me feel like i'm not welcome in britain and that was what people said you know throughout Did that uh, feel
0: funny to you, Um, having, you know, obviously roots there? And like you said, you traveled there often uh, to see that people are starting to feel like they're not welcome.
8: Yes, it was kind of sad to see because, you know, there are many parts of the U.K. that are very multicultural and that benefit a lot from being multicultural. And you met people like I met a Croatian guy. Who was working he' just it, he was just finishing a degree at edinburgh university he said i'm I'm in three weeks away from finishing my degree and he was working also in a hostel you know to to get money to get through his degree and he said i'm leaving i'm I'm done I'm gone you know he said it was partly to do with the Scottish weather, <laughs> which is not the best, but he said, you know why would I stay and make a life here?" When a couple of years from now, I might not be able to be here and they might kick me out. So that was kind of sad to see. But there was, I mean, in some ways, there was there was also a division of opinion among immigrants. I know one woman who is the daughter of Italian immigrants. So her parents came in in the 60s, even before the European Union. She was born in the UK, but she has very close ties with Italy. She travels back. She speaks Italian. She voted to leave, Hmm. which I thought was very interesting, you know, because um, she said it was an immigration issue to her. She said, yes, we need immigrants. Immigrants are very important, but we need to have control. We need to know who's coming in. We need people with skills and we, you know, people who are not a security threat.
0: You know, why should Americans uh, keep their eye on this? Why should they be following what's happening in, in the United Kingdom?
8: Well, I think it's going to it, it's going to have a big effect on the future of the whole of Europe. So Europe obviously is a key ally, key trading partner of the U.S. What happens in Europe, we've seen it already with things like the refugee crisis and the banking crisis in Europe. It has a huge effect over here. So, you know, I think it, it definitely is something that's worth people keeping their eye on. And, you know, you're already starting to see economic effects, Uh, you know, whether it's actually Brexit or whether it's just the uncertainty that nobody knows what's going to happen. You're seeing house prices stagnate. You're seeing companies slow down hiring. I was talking to people who work for international companies there, so companies who might be headquartered in the U.S. but have employees in the U.K., and they're saying, You know, our company is basically in a state of freeze right now, just waiting to see what will happen. They aren't making decisions about where to site operations or who to hire or where to do things because they really don't know what's going to happen. Has um, the pound continued to slide against the dollar? Has it's been a down pretty low. I haven't looked at it in the last few days. But yes, I, I felt unusually rich over there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, one positive from Brexit, Reuters is reporting uh, that, you know, a lot of tourists are heading over to the United Kingdom, uh, visitors from Hong Kong, the U.S. and Canada.
8: Yes, I mean, it's certainly true. I mean, I was there in peak season. So, you know, there's always a lot of people in London in July. And also, you know, in Edinburgh, they're just gearing up for the international festival, so it's always busy. But it did seem like there was many people some people were taking advantage of, um, you know, that the the low pound um, and feeling like they can come over and have a relatively cheap holiday in the UK. But also there, there were people who um, said other people they knew had stayed away because of security concerns. Because, you know, we had seen um, even while I was there, there were a couple of terrorist uh, incidents on the continent. And then just after I left, there was an incident in London, a stabbing in London. So people, you know, I mean, it there's kind of the feeling that okay, great, you know, it's it's a cheaper place to go now, but people are concerned about those security risks. It sounds like you did a lot of reporting, even though you're on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of, you know.
0: And will we be hearing um, some reports from you in the coming weeks again to look at how um, Connecticut companies who export, how they'll be impacted by um, further by the Brexit vote?
8: Yes, because, of course, you know, the UK is a big trading partner, especially of our aerospace companies. It's very, very important. We just recently this summer saw the air show go on in Europe that's, you know, hugely important to, to Connecticut companies. So again, their their problem right now is that low pound because they're trying to export. They're trying to have people in Britain buy their, their goods. You know, their goods are much more expensive for people in Britain now. So, you know, that's the immediate effect of Brexit for those companies. But in the longer term, it's not so clear, again, what's going to happen, how it's going to change that trading relationship.
0: All right. WNPR's Harriet Jones, thanks again for speaking with us. You're very welcome. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolfe. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Digital editor is Heather Brandon. You can continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy nall Thanks for listening.